everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from an echoey office space. Amy Knight. Hey, from Nashville and my room with my two cats in it because I'm a cat lady now. <laughs> uh, Joe is trying to join us, but he's having some issues with his audio, so we will uh, we'll come back to him. Uh, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's James Shore. Hi, everyone. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and it's not raining here, and I'm not sure what to do about this. This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components in plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash Kendo UI. The day star was blinding as I went outside today. <laughs> the day star? <laughs> That reminds me of Gremlins. Bright light. <laughs> so, James, you want to just uh, let people know who you are. We've had you on Ruby Rogues. We've had you on Adventures in Angular. And I think we're just going to kind of continue some of that conversation. But Yeah, so uh, the, the short version is that about 18 years ago, I was a tech lead. and I got introduced to extreme programming, which is an agile method. And I loved it so much. I've done nothing ever since. But I'm still a developer. I still get involved. And For six years, uh, it's ended now, but for six years, I had a screencast about JavaScript called Let's Code Test-Driven JavaScript, uh, which you can still find. It's still up at letscodejavascript.com, but I'm not adding any new episodes to it. I actually used to watch that. I learned a lot of JavaScript from you, and it was pretty good. So thank you. Awesome. Thanks. There you go, James. You're a hero. (laughs) (laughs) You and Kyle Simpson probably watch more videos from you guys than anybody else. That's great. Thank you. So uh, we did talk on... um, Adventures in Angular, and we kind of went through, I think Joe talked a lot about TDD. Uh, you know, we, we did talk about some of the Agile stuff. But I, I felt like in that conversation, we kind of talked around a lot of the talking points that people have when it comes to Agile development. We didn't really talk about what the core of it is. And I think that would be a really terrific place to start here. In your mind, James, what is kind of the core of Agile development? Huh, that's a that's a tricky question. You know, Agile... It, it, Agile is used in so many ways by so many different people Mm -hmm. that it's kind of hard to nail down. But if you go back to the core, which is the Agile Manifesto, it's really a philosophy. It's an idea about how to develop software. And then there's different ways of actually doing it. Scrum, most people have heard of. Another one is extreme programming. That's how I got introduced. Feature-driven development. There's other different ways of doing Agile. What's focused on in each of these different methods is different. But I would say the core of Agile is going back to the Agile Manifesto It's about the idea that we want to be responsive to our customers, our business partners in a business or our actual customers if we're selling software. We want to, rather than, as was done in the 90s, ask for a requirements document that's signed in triplicate, we want to be responsive to that. And we want to do it in a way that's sustainable and humane for the programmers involved. So I think that's the the simplest, sort of the short version of, of what Agile is all about. For me, it was more about, uh, I, I, think, I think the first point, if you go to agilemanifesto.org, it basically says, you know, it explains what, what the values are. And, and, and this is what I love is that it's the values, right? So every team can implement these a little bit differently. You're kind of working toward an ideal. It doesn't mean that the things, it's because it's this over that, this over that. Um, the this doesn't mean that the that doesn't matter, but it means that we're prioritizing these things. 
you know, so you mentioned the customer collaboration. And for me, the big thing was the individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's important when you're thinking about what is agile to, I'm going to sound incredibly stuffy and boring here, but I think it's important to understand the historical context. So I, I'm a consultant. I work with people hire me to help them do agile better, uh, usually more from a development and delivery perspective. And what's something that's interesting to me is that when I started doing this nearly 20 years ago, everybody understood the context of Agile because it was their life. But now I'm working with people who've never worked in any other way than something that was called Agile, which is kind of strange and bizarre for me. So to, to really understand Agile, you have to understand that in the mid-90s, the way that people thought software development was supposed to be done, the best way of doing it was that you would find a lot of business analysts who would write a requirements document by interviewing users and understanding the business context. Then they would hand that requirements document off to a smart, bunch of really smart people who were often called architects. And those architects would design the software using diagrams and so forth. And then they would hand that off to an army of relatively junior people, programmers. And in the most bureaucratic instances of this, the idea was that you just ship this all off to another country. India was popular at the time. And they could do the grunt work of coding it. And they, they, there was no real thinking of required. And as long as the architects did their job properly and the programmers did the job properly, everything would work perfectly. It would go into QA for testing and they would find a few things and then it would ship. This, of course, didn't really work, but there were a couple of consequences of this that were important to understand where Agile comes from. One, it was really dehumanizing. Uh, so you were talking about individuals and interactions as being sort of the core idea of Agile. People who were involved in this machinery, I think, found themselves feeling like they weren't valued. But the other thing that happened was that the people who were paying for the software, they weren't very happy with the results either because it took years for mm -hmm. to go through this entire process. So Agile came about in a reaction to these, these two things. One, people weren't being treated like humans. And two, people weren't getting what they wanted. You know, the, the people paying, the, writing the check, some people call them gold owners, who are also the goal donors, gold owners, they weren't getting what they wanted either. So I think both are actually really core to what Agile is about and um, important to understand. But I would say that in those years since, the focus on how do we work together in a way that's collaborative and communicative has overshadowed the other part of Agile, which is really important, which is how do you actually write software in a way that allows you to change direction? Uh, how do you actually have software that doesn't fall apart if you're not doing upfront design? That makes sense. I mean, I know AJ has all the answers up front, but I never do. So <laughs> I, I have to, you know, I have to be able to change course. And, and that, that is a big part. But when we're changing course, is that changing the specification or is that changing the way that we're working on the specification? It could be both. I think Agile is, is fundamentally about the people who are doing the work are the ones who are best situated to understand what work needs to be done and also how the work should be done. So very much the team should be seeking out new information and using that to inform their plans. But they should also be looking at the way they work and retrospecting, uh, using retrospectives as a common way of doing this, looking at the way they work and learning how to, to work better. And that's actually something that I think that most modern implementations of Agile uh, have lost because rather than the team defining their process, it's usually imposed on them using, and they have a tool, usually Jira, that sort of defines their process and everything's going to work. And although you can make little tweaks in the team, changing your process wholesale requires customizing Jira. And that's not easy. It's not fast. 
in the early days of Agile, we used cards on a, a whiteboard and we would come up with new processes, new ways of working all the time. And all we had to do is just change which cards we used and, and what we drew on the whiteboard. And there were you know, minutes mm-hmm. to make a change. Now, and I still recommend that actually, but now a lot of teams are using Jira and they, and they can't. That sounds really familiar. I have a, a little bit of a story on that. I worked at a company, I was a contractor at the time. And uh, yeah, they were fully bought into the Atlassian stack. So Jira, Bamboo, I can't remember what their wiki, Confluence. Anyway, so they have all these tools. And yeah, we wanted to change the way we were doing things. And we were basically locked into a lot of that process because that's the way Jira was set up and we weren't allowed to touch it. And, you know, similar with a lot of these other things, we started actually building workarounds for it that the team used. And then we would go use Jira just to put a good face on it so that the upper ups would be happy. You know, it's, it's funny you should say that because that's really familiar from the early days of Agile. When people first started doing, doing Agile, it was very much a grassroots movement. And that's, that's where extreme programming was. Before Scrum became popular, uh, extreme programming was the Agile method everybody was using. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly driven by programmers. There were all these experience reports in those early days about, we want to do XP, but the people around us want us to do a waterfall process with specification documents. How do we translate? And there are these basically project managers who would burn themselves out, providing an interface, hiding what the team was really doing and presenting it in a way that the rest of the organization would tolerate. And it's kind of funny that everybody uses the word agile now, but the same thing is still happening Mm -hmm. in the teams that are successful. And I think that's agile's biggest failing. The name agile is everywhere, but the actual ideas of agile, I don't think they're actually that much more prevalent than they were in 2006. Yeah, that particular job the whole process was driven by a certified scrum master. Huh. And yeah. uh, we, we fought the system and it was a quote unquote agile system. And it was because it was an agile. We weren't agile. We were stuck in that way of doing things because that's the way that he had to have us do it. So this is really apropos or not apropos. What's the word? Punk- punctual? No, it's timely because we just had this meeting where we were going to, we're, we're going to, change some of our processes. And we've had a scrum master come on board and we have this meeting. He draws a waterfall diagram on the board and it's all labeled like different agile buzzwords in the different sections. And so I said, you realize that's a waterfall diagram, right? <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 this is agile. So actually this is spawning uh, a, a meeting <laughs> in which I'll actually be able to get to put in a couple of viewpoints. So maybe I'll, I'll be able to learn some vocabulary here to say it in the right way. But I, I feel the same. Like I see so many times people start describing like how their agile work goes. And it's like, no, you're just taking buzzwords and applying them to the way that it was done long ago. Or the other way is, is we're agile and it's utter chaos, right? There is no method. The method is, oh, I got to do this. And I've worked at places that did that too. And they were agile too. Capital A, agile. Yeah, everyone is agile. I, I think if you're reading a book on agile, it's probably not very agile. The manifesto suffices for me. You know, I, I, I want to agree with that, but, but I can't. And that's because, yeah, the, the manifesto is, is where the philosophy is, but it's, it's so hard to know how to actually put that yeah. into practice. Well, it sounds like you were saying that on this prior team, you just kind of, you iterated the process step by step as you were developing product to meet the needs of the product stage and the team stage. 
We did, but we started out with a by a, with a by the book process, or at least our best understanding that that we could do. And I, I actually think that's the best way to learn agile. Uh, there's this saying that if you if you use retrospectives and you iterate it on a process and you have a culture that's document oriented, you'll iterate towards more and more finely crafted documents. And if you have a, a culture where everything gets done based on water cool co- cooler conversations, you'll iterate towards better and better water cooler conversations. But if you really want to change the way you work, and I think moving from a waterfall or a sort of cowboy coding approach, both are sort of at agile's in the middle of the spectrum with cowboy on one side and agile on, and waterfall on the other. Moving from either of those towards agile, I think it really requires a mindset shift. And that mindset shift doesn't, for most people, it doesn't come naturally. It's not something that you can iterate your way to. You actually have to, you know, be exposed to new ways of working. So in my opinion, the best way to really learn agile is either work with somebody who knows it really well, or yeah, actually read a book on agile done really well and try to apply it as written and learn from that experience. And then from that, learn what agile is about and then iterate. But if you just start from where you're at and iterate from there, you'll just make a more finely crafted version of what you already have. It's interesting you say that because the last full-time job I had, man, that was like nine years ago. (laughs) It feels like it's yesterday sometimes. And anyway, so, uh, we we convinced our boss to go agile and then we went to an agile conference and so he basically got you know the layout of how some other company was doing their agile development and it it was actually really terrific because we just implemented what they had and then we made sure like you said that we were just iterating on it and so it was this isn't working or we want to try this we kind of wound up with our own thing but we started off with something that was you know that had enough uh, good practices in it to where we were doing way better than we were. And at the same time, we understood that their team and our team were different and we could change what we needed to. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of doing it. Here's an example. One of the ideas in extreme programming that, I, that you don't see anywhere else is the idea of simultaneous phases. So of course, in Agile, the benefit of Agile is that you can change direction according to the needs of the business. So you can, you know, you can do lean startup and really explore your business opportunities, or you can just be responsive uh, to your internal business folks, whatever you need. It allows you to be very responsive. But how do you create good quality code when you're not supposed to, and you're only supposed to work in an iteration, right? A sprint or whatever, two weeks, let's say. So if you're only supposed to work two weeks at a time on what you have right now, and you're not supposed to look ahead, and what you're planning to do can change at any moment anyway, at least on the boundary of that two-week iteration, how do you do that without creating a mess? Ideas that people came up with solve that uh, in extreme programming with simultaneous phases, which is that rather than doing a little mini waterfall with you know requirements, design, implementation, test, deploy we're actually going to do requirements, design, implementation, test, and deploy at every step of the way every day. That way of working, it doesn't come naturally. It's not, it's not obvious. So reading up on how people do that, I think, has, has a lot of value. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious so, what the rest of the panel's experience is. Oh, AJ, do you have something you want to... I was, I was just going to ask James what his feelings are about what tends to be generically the best or good starting point. Well, that's a. <laughs> I, I'll give you your payout later. That's a that, that's a great plug. I, I wrote a book on that, so I, I do think that my book, even though it's about ten years old now, is still a great starting point. It's called The Art of Agile Development. 
What is so it? What you're saying is you <laughs> think that principles of human interaction don't get outdated after 10 years? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does it cover React? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't. You know, it, it doesn't cover dating strategies either. But uh, <laughs> Well, that seems like it would be essential. Yeah, you know. That could be useful for some members of this panel, in fact. Oh, good. You missed the beginning of our conversation. <laughs> Apparently, I did. I'll catch you up at the end. So, so uh, can you kind of give uh, a thumbnail sketch of what you recommend in the book? Then people can go get it, pick it up and get the specifics. Yeah. I mean, what I recommend in the book is a variant of extreme programming. So it's sort of a mixture of Scrum and extreme programming and lean software development, which is just from uh, Mary and Tom Poppendick. And the really short version is about having an intact team that has everybody you need in order to ship software. So that's not just developers. It's also people who basically represent the, the voice of the customer who know what needs to be built. So it's, they act as a living requirements document. So then rather than using JIRA or your stories or something like that to write down what you're going to do, you actually have the people who know what needs to be done as part of your team. So you combine that with, the, with Scrum and XP's iterative cycles. So every two weeks, you're shipping something. And you combine that with extreme programming's um, technical practices. So you're doing your design test, uh, deployment preparation, simplifying your architecture, and so forth. You're thinking about that every day. And that, along with some of the ideas of lean software development, and you get this amalgam- amalgamation of, of ideas that all work really well together. It's, um, it's hard for me to go into more detail than that because that would be a whole hour conversation right. on its own. But, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a mashup of, of what's, what's worked best in the Agile methods, but it's very concrete and very specific. So once people get started, uh, where, where do you see them getting stuck? That's an interesting question. You know, in the early days of Agile, people got stuck on company culture. There are some, there are some of the technical practices that are just difficult to, to do, like test-driven development, for example. It's one of those things that sounds easy when you read about it, but it actually takes a lifetime to master. And one of the ways people kind of get stuck is they, they run into mock objects and they start using that as a hammer for every single nail they run into. They kind of overuse that. I, n- I never did that. No, of course not. The biggest challenge, I think, is actually getting permission, like really doing this well. You want to have a team room, not, not a giant open plan office and not individual offices, but a team room where you can work in collection with other people on your team. And you need people on that team that represent all the disciplines necessary to ship. So you need some requirements business folks, and you need some developers, and you need some uh, testing experience, and you need some op- operational experience so that you can actually own the whole the whole process of deciding what to build and shipping that software in the team. And that challenges the organizational structure a bit. And it's not something that everybody can get overnight. I agree with doing that. I think sometimes it feels a little cumbersome and slow. Like, I don't know, it's, I guess it's a trade-off maybe like the communication involved in having to coordinate with that many people to get something out the door. I don't know. Again, yeah, I think it's maybe it's just a trade-off because we tried to do that. We we began doing that at the job I was at before I started at NPM and it was good, but you know, we'd sit in a room and like just to get something out the door would take like we'll we'll say like PRs are merged and we we had to do some manual verification because we didn't have that whole process just took up like half the day. 
Well, exactly. That's that's why I was saying that it's hard to iterate yourself to a really successful agile method. Yeah, yeah. Because there's all these little pieces that feed off each other in, in agile. So for example, the teams that are doing an XP-based process really well, they're sitting in that same room together. They're using pair programming, so there's no pull requests. Uh, yeah, yeah. The peer review from the, pull, from the pairing. And they've got automated testing, so there's no pre-ship test uh, cycle. When they run their yeah. build... And it's either ship first, or no ship. Yeah. It, then you're, then you're done. So yeah. basically, for example, the, the code, I wrote a little content management system for let's code javascript.com. I, I shipped it yesterday. And when I want to ship, I open up a VM and I press, I, I type CI sh space release. Then that, that runs all the tests. It uploads to Heroku. It tests, it runs a smoke test to make sure that the site's still live on Heroku and it's done. It takes about three minutes. So I can ship whenever I want. It doesn't take half a day. And it is possible to, I mean, that's just me, but it is possible to set that up in a team of 10 people and have that same experience. But it, it, you have to work at it. You have to intentionally make that happen. Well, and I think, I think that's at the core of a lot of this stuff is when I talk to people and they basically are saying, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble doing Agile. It's that they haven't gotten buy-in from everybody, right? You don't have everybody pointed the same direction. This is the way we're going to do this. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to the point where we can have painless deploys, or we're trying to get to the point where we have, you know, what whatever the other big pain is, right? Every team has a, a little bit different thing, right? Everybody knows what they're working on, and, and, and maybe that's your problem. But, uh, you know, there's somebody that just isn't bought in, or you, you can't get the right stakeholders to come join in with the effort. And so it, it gets hard because you're trying to move ahead without, everybody pulling in the same direction. Yeah, exactly. You know, I do, uh, as a consultant, people bring me in to teach them how to do this, get to really effective agile. I do what's called, what I call immersion coaching, where I come in and I join the team for several months at a time to really, you know, teach and establish everything. And a lot of what I'm doing is just getting all the people together to understand what it is that we need to do and how are we going to do it and pulling all those threads, which, which can be like pulling teeth sometimes. Uh, just getting everybody to to agree. Honestly, part of what make that, makes that work for me is that I'm coming in as an outside expert and that just automatically gives me credibility. If, even if I'm saying the exact same thing that the people who are in the trenches have been saying. Yeah, I've also found if you start a new job and you're the new person, a lot of times that gives you the same level of credibility. Yeah, I, I've occasionally thought it would be nice to actually go to work as a normal job and be part of a team that that I, I really get to know everybody and I can be part of that team rather than moving on every three months. But one of the things that stops me is knowing that, you know, familiarity breeds, breeds contempt. What I can do as an outsider is actually a lot more than what I could do in terms of, you know, influencing change as somebody inside a company. Sad, sad but true. Yeah, I mean, the, that same job, that same last full-time job, I showed up my first day and I was super junior too. I was, I was more or less one of the junior guys on the team. And I came in and said, let's set up CI. And they went for it. And then all of a sudden, everybody's chipping in and adding new jobs to the CI to make sure that, you know, it's, it's, it's checking this and making sure that this and we, we got an extra monitor and mounted it on the wall, <laughs> you know, but, but it was just that impetus of change. It was like, this made this part really easy. And everybody went, that sounds nice. And, and, it's, a, and it's a great experience too, isn't it? And, and once that happened, everybody loved it, didn't they? They loved having oh, yeah. it. But why didn't they do it before you said anything? I don't know. The, yeah. the other thing is the, related to that is I took the initiative and did it, right? I, I took the initiative and set it up. And that, that made it easy on them too, because they didn't have to figure out how to do it. 
I think in companies, people turn into boiled frogs. You know, we're doing this because it's the way that it's always been done. And it does take somebody coming in from the outside to, to shake things up a little bit, or at least maybe just to not have anything that they're supposed to be getting done instead. So they have time to work on these things. I don't know if Google still does this. They used to have 20% time. And that's actually one of the ideas I put into my book um, is just 10% time, set aside half a day every week as free time that people on the team can work on whatever they want, as long as it's not production code. And uh, we call it research time. It, it seems like a waste of time to spend a whole half day for the entire team to not be working on production code. But every place I was able to actually do that, we saw big benefits, uh, exactly like what you're talking about. Not always necessarily process improvements, because those are the kinds of things that we would talk about and actually do as part of our normal work, but exploring new libraries and new ways of working. And it, it always some of those always came back and always it was a bigger benefit than cost, even though you couldn't really point to how it was going to be a bigger benefit. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's my experience as well. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So I'm curious then, you know, you're doing consulting AJ, Joe, um, especially AJ, since you're actually, you know, working for a company doing a thing, what, what does your process look like? Well, like I was saying, we just have gone into an iteration of changing the team because the team has grown a lot in the past few months and I'm one of the, the new additions. But essentially what we do, we have uh, one-on-ones, which is really cool. The, the manager is just very personable and very like positive and like thinking about how do we resolve issues and never it's like nothing ever seems to be about blame casting or any of that, like super great manager. And then there's, there's a product side that's kind of like a little bit hidden away that comes up with some ideas and then they, they go through a design phase and then they land up at the, at development. And so we you know bring up issues that we know about within our process, but a lot of stuff comes from kind of left field as it as it were. And we get stuff into a backlog, move it into like there there's some joint discussion as to like how to move that from backlog to work that gets done. But a lot of that discussion is happening before it gets to the developer team precisely. So I, I think overall we have a pretty good process. It's pretty fluid. There's not too much thrash. There's like where you have to like change directions six times during the same week. Like every once in a while a fire pops up, but I'd say there's not too much thrash and there is like flexibility. The one thing that I that my observation is I think could be improved is just having more more connection between the customer that's like way over on the left side of the 
the whiteboard and the developer that's way over on the right side. I, I feel like one of the spirits of Agile is getting the customer and the developer kind of on the same page together um, and not having distance between them. I think that's one of the key things between like the waterfall style versus the the more agile style. And James, is that does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. It's really hard to get. Diana Larson and I created something called the Agile Fluency Model that shows various types of Agile that different teams do. And the ideal of Agile is this, what we call optimizing, where the team is really aware of what's going on in their, in their market and uh, sort of surfing the wave of possibility in terms of what they're delivering. But it's rare because to do that, when you say, you know, closer to the left side of the whiteboard, closer to the right side of the whiteboard, it's actually, they're on this, you know, they're in the same place on the whiteboard. They're physically, they're not just in the same place on the whiteboard. They physically sit next to each other and talk every day. And that's where the, the actual, you know, decision makers about the product, that's their desk is right there in the development team room. Um, but that's hard to get, unfortunately. And I think, I think the people who don't get that are missing out on the, the biggest benefit of Agile, which is this ability to really understand your business context and make better decisions as a result. Yeah, what, what you said reminded me a little bit of the Grows Method by Andy Hunt. And he's got a couple of other people helping him. We've done shows on that on Ruby Rogues, I think. He, he kind of lines up, here are the things you should work on first. Like, here are the practices you should learn. And then, um, you know, you have state, he has like three or four stages. It's just interesting. It's like, hey, you know, these are some things that you can just kind of step by step level up on. You know, it's interesting. I haven't looked into the Gross Method. I know that Andy, he was one of the original authors of the Agile Manifesto. And uh, I know he got really disillusioned with the way that Agile actually took place and, and was, was taken up. I believe the Gross Method was sort of his reaction to that. But um, I haven't looked into it myself, and maybe I should. I know that Dave Thomas and a few other people who were signatories of the Agile, or original signatories of the Agile Manifesto, they've also come out and basically said things like Agile is dead and things like that. And, and essentially what they're saying is, yeah, you know, this, is, this isn't what was intended. It's become this big commercial term. And you know, what we're looking for is you know, more or less what we've been talking about this whole time, which is find something that works for you and, and work through it and iterate as a team and get better as a team and focus on these core tenets that make the software work and make the process work and make the people happy and all of those things. A lot of us who were involved in the early days of Agile, um, I think are kind of disappointed with how commercial it's become. You know, this certified scrum trainer, certified scrum master, certified, uh, you know, safe is, is this big scaled Agile frameworks, this big certification thing. Everybody's monetizing, but, um, you know, everybody's got to make a living. But one of the great things about Agile in the early days was that it was very much a community-driven grassroots effort. And there was a lot of exploration about neat ideas and how, how can we actually develop software well. And these days, uh, I, I do feel, especially from some of the more certification-oriented you know, factories out there, certificate mills, that it's not so much about how can we develop software really well, but how can we, how can we make a buck really quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, everybody has to make money. I have to make money too. But I'd like to see more integrity in the process. That's kind of interesting. So I've got an employee and she's going through boot camp. And at the end of the boot camp, they actually put her through or a certified scrum master training. And I, I have my certified scrum master training or my certified scrum master certificate and went through the three-day course. But I did my three-day course after having done scrum for several years. 
I was like really shocked that they wanted to put these, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say they're kids, right? But these students who are just learning development through certified Scrum Master training. Like to me, that was, that was ridiculous to take somebody who just barely learned development, hadn't been ever worked on an actual production project and say, hey, let's have you go through and become a Scrum Master. That's, you aren't a Scrum Master because you took a two-day class, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, Scrum's got some in, an unfortunate name choices. And I think that's partly because Ken, Ken Schwaber, you know, is just his personality. I, my understanding is that the original Scrum Master certification was a joke. You know, Ken Schwaber did this two-day course about Scrum and he said, and now at the end, congratulations, you're certified. Because even then, you know, for late 90s, early 2000s, certification was a big thing. You had the Microsoft certified thing. You had Novell certified thing. There were all these sort of industry certifications. And I suspect, based on talking to people who went to these early courses, that the certified Scrum Master was actually a joke. And it was such a commercial success, they ran with it. Now, I don't know that that's true. So, so if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But um, that's, that's what I've heard. Interesting. Well, however it started, when I took my certified Scrum Master training, I found it to be one very valuable sort of a two or three day sort of, it was... You know, I've been practicing Scrum for a while and we'd actually gone through, I don't know if we ever did training at the place that we were at that I'd, I did Scrum at, but we definitely did read some books about it and practice it and gotten very involved with what is Scrum and doing Scrum, you know, at least we thought was the right way. And when I went through the two-day training for becoming a certified Scrum master, I felt like it was a very good distillation of what Scrum was and to go over it and by, I mean, I don't, I it was so long ago, I can hardly remember if I felt like by the time that I was done, if everybody who had passed really should call themselves a certified Scrum Master or not. I certainly felt like I should after having practiced it for two years and then sort of formalized that. I found it to be, you know, sort of a valuable sort of summing up of what Scrum was. And uh, at least I felt like they were like checking, okay, you truly do understand and have the capability to become, to, you know, run a Scrum process. Yeah, I, I do want to be clear that when I said I think the certifi- the certification was a joke, I wasn't talking about the actual course, which um, was never meant to be a joke. It was actually teaching people about Scrum. Right. But the idea of, hey, you're blessed, now you're certified. Um, <laughs> I think that was originally done as sort of a, a, a jab at the certification industry that worked out for them in a way that uh, was did, expected. Did bachelor's degrees start out the same way? <laughs> <laughs> Congrats, you're single. <laughs> I think that the, the quality of the Scrum Master courses out there really varies. There sounds like the one you went to. And although it's easy to bash on Scrum, and one of the reasons is, I think, because it doesn't really say anything about how are you going to actually deliver this software reliably? What's the engineering behind it? But despite that, and despite you know, my criticism of, of the certification industry, it has been really successful at getting the Scrum ideas out there and in a way that I think is mostly successful. Like most of the people, most of the places where I'm doing, where I see Scrum, they actually understand some of the core principles of Agile. They don't necessarily know how to do it and they struggle with, you know, getting people in the room and so forth, but they understand what Agile is about and they really understand the individuals and interactions part of Agile. It's the rest of it of how do we deliver working software without having comprehensive documentation? How do we have customer collaboration? 
how do we respond to uh, change other than you know just putting a story in Jira? That's the part that I think the Scrum industry has failed to uh, failed to really accomplish. Interesting. Agile, I feel like, is definitely one of those things like Rest. Everybody talks about it. Everybody says that they're doing it, and if you ask the creator of it, nobody else is doing it right. <laughs> I, I think there's. I think there's some some truth there, and people use that as a criticism, saying, "Well, if nobody can do it right, you know, is it actually worth doing? Is it a good process if nobody can do it right?" And uh, you know, I think that's a fair critique. I've definitely seen teams doing agile really well, but it's not common. You know, you can criticize people. Say, "Well, there's a no true Scotsman," because if somebody says we did agile and it didn't work, and somebody else says, "Well, what you did wasn't agile," it's <laughs> it's easy to. Well, is anybody ever doing Agile? Right. I think people do. People really do Agile, but I think it's a fraction of the teams that say they're doing Agile. Well, so, for me, as, as far as any of that goes, I care about the results, right? If we're talking about whether or not you're doing real, actual, blah, 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 whatever, Agile, I don't care. Are you getting the results that you're looking for? Are you delivering the software? Is it super painful to deliver the software? Are you trying to solve those problems? I mean, that's where I'm, I'm looking at this and going, you know, so, so be a little more agile, you know, be a little bit more uh, willing to change and willing to look at what you're doing and, and take some of the ideas from some of these methodologies and say, okay, well, maybe pairing sounds insane to you, but try it anyway and see if it makes some of that pain go away. Or may see if it greases some of these wheels so that they they you know they turn smoothly. I don't know. I think that's right on. Um, when I first heard about extreme programming in in 1999, my first reaction is that's that is stupid. The name is stupid. I don't like it. And then, um, but I looked into it and I saw these things like pair programming and incremental design, evolutionary design, and I thought that seems really stupid too. But the difference was that I tried it. I tried test-driven development on a Perl project, which worked really well. And I was like, hey, this actually works. Well, what about the other ideas? Let's try those out. And that's when we, uh, the, I got hired into lead a team. And I said, hey, I've, I've been looking at these XP ideas. Let's try it all by the book. And we tried it all. Some of the ideas worked. Most of the ideas worked. Uh, a couple of them didn't. There's this idea called system metaphor that's been dropped that didn't really work. But it was that, that willingness to actually give it a real try for several months to do it by the book and to learn from other people's experience rather than just reading about it and saying, well, I know how that that couldn't possibly work, so I'm going to change it and do it my way. And then failing at that, it, it, there's a big difference there, I think. And it comes down to your willingness to, to experiment and to really try things. Yeah, my, my first exposure to the ideas was somebody talking about XP uh, or extreme programming. And I, I thought they were insane. I was like, you pair program and you write the test first? I mean... And they started talking about the results and, and then I couldn't wait to try it. And yeah, I mean, if it's going to work and it's going to pay off, then give it a shot. It may sound crazy, but a lot of this stuff is counterintuitive. I wish uh, XP would come back because the best job experiences I've ever had were doing extreme programming. And yeah, the name is still stupid. And it was, <laughs> it was, a, terrible, <laughs> it was a terrible name. It barely worked in the 90s and it really doesn't work now. Um, it's such a 90s name, extreme programming. But the actual ideas, uh, everybody's heard of TDD now, but that was just a piece of a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And those actual ideas worked so well. I've never had so much fun developing software as I've had on the XP teams I've worked with. And it, it's kind of sad that uh, it's fallen off the radar. 
I absolutely love pairing. I think like what you said a little bit ago about not having to do a code review when you do pairing, that is so valuable. It's like whenever I pair with someone, I feel like the quality of what we produce is so much higher. You get that real-time level up, right? I mean, when I'm doing something dumb, somebody calls it out right there. Hey, (laughs) there's a a better way. You know, it's usually not, you're an idiot. It's let's try this and see if it works better. And then I learned something right off and I'm right in the code instead of going back and trying to remember why I did something the way I did it. Yeah, the quality of the review is so much better because you don't have a day or two between doing the work and getting your feedback. Yep. So how do you know if you are doing Agile? I think it comes down to what Chuck was saying. You know, if it doesn't matter if you're doing Agile, but if you're getting the results that you want to get, then then that's that's good enough. And maybe what you're doing is Agile and maybe it's not. But if you're not getting the results you want, maybe look a little closer at the at the core Agile ideas. But I would say that for most people, starting with a manifesto, starting with the values is actually not the best way to learn. It's better to start with something concrete, actual practices. You know, it's good to know the values, the stuff that you see in the Agile Manifesto. But how, do, how you put that into practice, I think that comes from taking a, a written method, and I would recommend XP, and I am partial to the way I described it in my book. But, you know, whichever re- method you, you like, try it and actually try it by the book for four months five months, six months if you can. And of course, as you're doing that, give everything a good solid try, but then change it as you go. And then what you'll end up with three years from down the road will be something entirely different. It'll be very custom, but you'll learn so much from from doing that initial by the book experimentation. Hmm. This is a good answer as anything. I was going to say, I guess I didn't actually answer the question of, are are you doing agile? Let, Let me give that another shot. If you can respond to a request to change direction in less than two weeks, and you don't have to spend months and months preparing to deliver something, if, if they ask for something that can be implemented in two weeks, you can actually ship that in two weeks. If you can do that, and you do so in a way where the people on the team feel like they're contributing, then I say you could probably say you're agile. If you want a, a better answer to that than the agile fluency model that Diana and Larson and I created, it has a whole bunch of of things that you should expect from Agile and that, that you could look at that article and go into more detail. Uh, that's found at agilefluency.org. Could you go over your second point again? Uh, I think the, the second thing I said was, and people on the team feel like they're respected members of the team. Uh, they're treated as humans, not as robots or you know, plug-compatible programming tools. Well, that's an interesting... That's an interesting point because I think that might be something that is often overlooked. But of course, there's, I'm sure that you've encountered plenty of people that it doesn't really matter how they're treated or what's going on. They're always going to find things wrong. And, you know, feeling respected and feeling human is also a sliding scale. You go work at a sweatshop factory and then come to a, a place that's much better and you'll feel, oh, you're so respected and valued. And then people that work at a place like that could go to a place that's, you know, even farther along the scale and you know, they could be very unhappy with what they were, just like, you know, the definitions of poor, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, maybe a better way to describe that, I was trying to get at something, but I don't think I got it quite right. I think a better way of describing that second point is, are the people who are doing the work responsible for deciding how the work should be done? Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have that, you probably don't, aren't on an agile team. And if you don't have the re- ability to respond to business changes, you're not on an agile team. I don't remember if we ever talked about this, but do you ever encounter the concept of the uh, pigs and the chickens? 
for like standup meetings and stuff? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, I said that Ken Schwaber's choice of words wasn't always great. I object to a lot of his wording, like calling a, an, a sprint, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon or scrum master. Well, they're not in charge. They're there to enable. And the pigs and chickens is another metaphor that I'm really not fond of. Um, <laughs> do, do, do you remember the joke that pigs and chickens comes from? No. Oh yeah. The, the line, um, chickens are involved, but pigs are committed. Right. Yeah, but when it comes to break, when it comes to breakfast, chickens are involved, but pigs are committed. <laughs> exactly. So what we're talking about is killing and eating the programmers who are the pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not really sure that's the metaphor I want to use. I only use that metaphor. I use that metaphor at one place. And I actually really, I, I like the course. That it was also part of a process, which was at stand-up meetings, the chickens get to listen. They don't get to talk unless they are asked a question. What was it? It was like, the, it was like a pretty, it was pretty nice because you didn't have the managers coming in or the product product managers or other kinds of managers coming in and trying to dominate stand-up meeting. That, that reminds me of a saying, uh, seagull management. That's uh, where the manager flies in, shits all over everything, and then flies out. <laughs> <laughs> One of the places I worked at, that, that was essentially what the marketing and product direction guy did. He'd, he'd come in, tell us it wasn't good enough, and leave. And we're like, okay, so what are we supposed to do about it? Yeah, thanks, thanks for the help. Do <laughs> you need more direction? It was pretty clear to me. Even I had to understand that. It's not good enough. Work on it more. Well, that's, that's like, and, and I, I'm going to use this analogy because I think it's appropriate here. I was, I was talking to somebody. I've decided that I'm going to run a marathon next year. And I've done running training before, but my running training basically consisted of, oh, now I want to do a 5 or a 10K, so I'm going to run more. And then I'd eventually get burned out and I'd quit, right? Um, and so I finally hired a coach. And this is a, a somewhat recent development where we're figuring out what program is um, for me. And she's been terrific to talk to, but I just brought somebody in who could kind of tell me what direction I needed to head in. And that, that's the kind of project management or product person you want is somebody who can tell you what and why, right? Like James was talking about before, somebody who's connected to the customer. But also as you're implementing Agile, a lot of times, uh, if you can talk to people who have more experience or hire an Agile coach, a lot of times they can get you, you know, off in the right direction, or they can tell you, you know what, um, as you're modifying your practices, you're saying you're modifying to try and solve this problem. Here's another practice you may not have heard of, or this pain usually in, is indicative of this solution. So instead of trying to figure it out on your own, you can go find somebody that'll help you along your way. Yeah, I think that's a really good metaphor uh, for, for what the idea of the Agile coach is. I mean, originally the Scrum Master was supposed to be that kind of coaching role, but it's turned into something I've the project manager. Scrum Master do. that did that well. I'm sorry. I've never had a Scrum Master that wasn't a dictator. I think it's because the quality of the training is pretty varied, and also, like Joe was saying, there's only so much you can learn in two days. If you've been doing it for a couple of years, oh, yeah. and then you go to the two days, you'll learn a lot. Mm -hmm. If you if you're brand new and exposure to Scrum, and in those two days, you'll probably learn some good things about people. That's what they teach, tend to teach in those courses. But you're going to mix that in with everything that you already thought was the right way to do project management. And that's not really going to change. You know, in the, in the early days of Agile, it was really threatening to people with project management roles because there wasn't a project manager role on the team. XP had the XP coach, Scrum had the Scrum master, but both of those were enabling coaching roles. Ultimately, the goal was to get to the point where that role was no longer needed on the team because the team knew what they were doing and continued 
to develop uh, develop themselves. But it morphed into Scrum Master is a new name for project manager. And the job of the project managers that they already knew was tell people what to do. All right. Well, anything else that we should uh, jump on here? I don't know if we have time for it, but one thing that we didn't talk about that every conversation about Agile tends to go this way, tends to focus far more on the, in my opinion, less interesting aspects of Agile of how do you organize the work than on how do you actually do the work. I think that's where the real innovations of Agile are, are actually in the way that software development is actually done in an Agile environment. Uh, how you do the test-driven development and the, uh, you know, the actual technical work. Hmm. So how do, we, how do we talk about that? I mean, how, how, do we, how does that conversation usually come up? It's, uh, it's, as I was saying at the beginning, it's one thing to say to people, hey, we need to deliver every two weeks, but it's another thing to actually do it. Of course, a lot of people have heard about test-driven development now, so that's a big piece of it. But another, another aspect of it is evolutionary design, which is how do we make our software as small and simple as possible for what we're doing today while still leaving ourselves open for making changes to it in the future? Uh, continuous integration and pairing. Uh, how, do we do, how do we work so that everybody on the team is contributing to the same trunk and nobody has branches that live more than a couple of hours at most? And uh, continuous deployment. How do we deliver what we're building all on one trunk in a way that we can ship at any time, but not worry about breaking, shipping things that are partially done. Uh, so any one of those would be, you know, a whole topic that we could discuss. Well, uh, why don't we have you come back in a month or so and talk about one of those, and then we can kind of hash some of that out. Yeah, I'd love to. And if you're working with Diane on the Agile Fluency, maybe we can have her come on too. Yeah, I think she'd really appreciate that. Hey guys, let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there, and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it, and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking in the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the REST. If you go to https clubhouse.io slash jsjabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's https clubhouse.io slash jsjabber. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. We have been talking for about an hour and do some picks. Go ahead, Joe. All right. I only got one pick this week. Netflix recently came out with a show called The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is a feature-length series of short films by the Coen brothers. And I've really liked all the stuff that they've done in general. And uh, this was really no disappointment. It, it, it was very unusual because it's short stories. And normally I don't like short stories. You know, there's these, there's these short films. And uh, I prefer generally a feature-length movie. But this was actually really, really quite enjoyable. And a lot of variety to each one of them. Some of them are funny and some of them are pretty serious. But if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend that you do. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That's my pick. Nice. Amy, what are your picks? Uh, so I am going to pick, because I've been doing this bunch lately, um, more interviewing stuff. There is a giant Hacker News thread on um, what different interview processes have been like for different people. So that will be my pick. I really feel bad because I've not had any like food picks lately or 
health ones, but there's just, I don't know. I haven't seen anything new and interesting out there lately. I need to be on the lookout or something. <laughs> I feel like my picks have been boring. I don't know. That'll be my pick. This interview thread. It's pretty good. It's all good. You've got a new job and you're settling in. <laughs> I am. I've been pretty busy. Yeah. AJ, you have some picks for us? Okay. So there's this book by the author of Da Vinci Code called Origin. I'm about halfway through it. And I think it's really intriguing. So if you like that style, like if you like the Da Vinci Code, you'd probably like Origin. I think very similar style, similar themes, some of the same characters. So that's been pretty cool. And I watched this movie called Searching uh, just the other day. It recently exited theaters. So it was in theaters for, for a while, or maybe it's been out of theaters for a while, actually. I don't know. But this year. And um, it gave me such nostalgia for Windows XP because the way the story progresses is that it's it's kind of like following this dad in the technological age who's raising this daughter and then it goes into like the real plot point of like why the daughter's missing. But the whole story is told from the perspective of like iPhones and MacBooks and computers and stuff. So like everything is from the perspective of either like a webcam or a phone call or whatever. So it's, it's an interesting stylistic choice. But um, and I think the movie was well done. I think couple of the actors were subpar for their roles. Primarily, the detective wasn't like as, as strong of an actor as I would have hoped for. I think it would have really strengthened the movie. But the thing I was getting at is just like, it just gave me such nostalgia for Windows XP because it was so beautiful and it was such a pleasant experience. And the Bliss screensaver, or not screensaver, uh, desktop with like the rolling hills and the, the blue sky and and like that, doo -doo -doo, or I'm not doing it right, but like that welcome tone you got doo -doo -doo, uh, when you logged in. I hope that we come back to, to vibrant, beautiful user experience. I mean, like, you know, a lot of things with Windows XP were terrible, the, you know, the, the, how it got viruses and worms being one of them. But, but it was just so beautiful. It was so pretty if you stayed in the main core experience of like logging and logging out and using the start menu. <laughs> oh, so that's, that's all. Awesome. I'm going to jump in here with a, a few picks of my own. So uh, lately I've been emulating our own Amy Knight and I've been getting up at 4 a.m., which is really hard for me, <laughs> I will admit. Yes. It's, I don't, you just accomplish so much, though, because the rest of the world is asleep. Like no traffic, no lines. Yeah, my kids oh, are all great. asleep. <laughs> So a little bit of backstory here. Uh, I know a few people who listen to these shows, listen to entreprogrammers or watch entreprogrammers on YouTube. By the way, the feed is a little bit behind. I guess by the time this comes out, that episode will be out. But we decided to do a challenge where we do eight Pomodoros before noon. And uh, if you're not familiar with the Pomodoro technique, you basically work for 25 minutes and you take a five minute break. And um, on Tuesdays, I start recording podcasts at 10 a.m. I have two back-to-back, -back, so I had to get all of my Pomodoros in before 10 a.m., plus I have to get up with my kids at 6 a.m. Um, my wife took my kids to school this morning. I usually do that on Tuesdays as well so that I could get all my Pomodoros in, but I had to get up at 4 a.m. and get started in order to get them done, and uh, I am just finding that, that, yeah, I get a ton done. I mean, I got more done this morning than I usually get done in a day. And, you know, now I've recorded three podcasts. Um, I've got a couple of other follow-ups and things I've got to take care of this afternoon. But yeah, it's, it's been awesome. So um, I'm going to pick getting up early, which if you saw me this morning, I looked really sad, but I did it. 
The other thing that I'm going to pick, and this is, I need to put the video link in, uh, but my friend John Sonmez has a video up on YouTube where he talks about how he plans out his day. And he uses a tool called Kanban Flow, kanbanflow.com. It's free. Um, I think it costs once you start adding people into projects and I don't know. So what he does though, is he uses the different stages that you would move your Kanban uh, stories through. He just sets them up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then he puts all the stuff that he needs to get done on each day in. And then it has a built-in Pomodoro timer. And so you can tell it, you know, I'm doing a Pomodoro and this is what I'm working on. That's been really, really nice. It's also how I've been showing those guys that I've been doing my Pomodoros because we, we, we decided to put our money where our mouth was. And so if, if you don't get the Pomodoros done on a, a given day, you have to pay 25 bucks the pot. So I, I am not paying, <laughs> I'm not paying money. And I'm definitely not going on on Friday and going, I didn't get it done. So yeah, just these little productivity hacks have been really fun. And then my last pick, I've been using a system called Drip for my emails for a long time. And uh, yeah, people are starting to get emails for me. My unsubscribe rate went up a little bit, which is normal when you start emailing people after you haven't for a while. But I've also got a lot of great uh, responses. So um, if you're getting those emails, feel free to reply. I really appreciate that. And you know, I'm probably going to screw things up at some point and send you two campaigns at the same time. And I'm sorry, but I'm figuring this stuff out to make sure that you're getting what you want. So um, if you want to get on the list, you can go to any of the shows and there's an email sign up link right there. And that'll actually get you the episodes for those shows. So it'll email you and say, hey, there's new JavaScript Jabber. Um, but anyway, so yeah, those are my picks. James, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I've got some sci-fi picks, but, but I got a comment. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not getting up early. I am so not. I'm so <laughs> not a morning person. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've got some sci-fi picks. Uh, first off, um, Netflix has a new show. It's called Lost in Space. When I saw it on the screen, on the menu, I thought, well, wasn't that that really campy, cheesy 60s? TV show. But I, I love science fiction, so I decided to watch it with my wife. And it's really good. So yeah, it's, um, I, I thought it was really well done. Definitely not a lot of 60s camp in there. So if you're looking for a good sci-fi show, uh, Lost in Space uh, on Netflix. And then um, for years, a couple of years now, I've been following the development of a PC game called Star Citizen, which if you've heard of it, you probably either love it or hate it, even if you've never played it, because it tends to create this real polarized reaction. But I, I've never paid any money into this. This is, this is the world's largest crowdfunded project. They've got over $200 million in, in crowdfunding at this point. I've not paid into it, but watching the development is just fascinating. So uh, I definitely suggest if you're interested in seeing what a large-scale development project is like, pay attention, you know, read the Star Citizen Reddit, pay attention to the development. They come out with a release every three months. And uh, it's interesting to see how they manage people's expectations. Because the gaming community, of course, is really, um, really opinionated, really uh, hard to please, and really fickle. So they're always looking at some, for something to be, get mad about. So watching how they manage everybody's expectations as they spend $200 million of $40 at a time in backers' money is, is quite interesting. And then I guess my last pick is not so much a pick, but uh, we talked a little bit about how do you, you know, about how could you do Agile by the book. If anybody is interested in my book on it, uh, most of it is actually online for free. And you can find it at jameshore.com slash agile book, which uh, I'll, put the, uh, I'll put the URL up. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, James. It was fun to talk and hopefully folks got some ideas of some of the things they can do to make their teams run a little bit more smoothly. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap this one up, folks, and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.